WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Science Friday is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. That's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. WNYC Studios is supported by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, software for technical computing and model-based design. MathWorks, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Did you know that the U.S. Department of Defense is the single largest institutional contributor of greenhouse gas emissions in the world? And we argue that they have a commensurate responsibility to pay um, international climate finance to those countries that are most affected by the climate crisis, but least responsible. It's Tuesday, December 19th, but as you know, every day is Science Friday. I'm sci-fi producer Rasha Aridi. Between the fuel consumed by military bases, planes, and ships, plus the process of making and using weapons and clearing land, militaries around the world account for almost 6% of all greenhouse gas emissions. A new report calculated how much two prominent militaries, the U.S. and the U.K.'s, would hypothetically owe if they paid for the damage caused by their carbon emissions. The total? $111 billion. Here's Ira Flato. Joining me are two authors of the report, Kemra Gailey, senior researcher at Commonwealth, a think tank in London, Dr. Patrick Bigger, research director at the Climate and Community Project, a progressive climate policy think tank. He's based in Maryland. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much, Ira. Thanks for having us. Patrick, you focused on the U.S. and the U.K. militaries. Why choose those two? Well, for one thing, we're, we're based in the U.S. and U.K., and so these are... Uh, policy decisions that we're very concerned with, and also the roles historically of the U.S. and U.K. in really creating and securing the global fossil fuel economy that we've been living with over the past century or so. Uh, that's the primary driver of greenhouse gas emissions and associated changes to the climate. Now, I mentioned that $111 billion figure in climate reparations. How did you get that number? Give me some of the math there. Sure. So it's it's not a particularly complicated set of math. What we did was look at the self-reported emissions figures from both the U.S. and U.K. militaries since 2015, uh, which, of course, is the year of the Paris Climate Accord. So a year that you know there was real international consensus that something uh, serious needs to be done about the climate crisis. And then we looked at a range of figures for what's called the social cost of carbon, or effectively the damages that would be caused by each excess ton of carbon emissions. And we landed on what we think is a kind of middle of the road figure around $250 per ton and applied that to each ton of emissions that the U.S. and U.K. militaries self-reported. And so that's how we arrived at this figure of $111 billion since 2015. 
Uh, Ken, was that surprising to you? I don't think so. Just because we were aware of the the scale of of military emissions, um, both from the UK and the US, with especially the US and and, and the size of its military, a particular concern to us. Actually, um, as Patrick said, the figure is quite middle of the road. um, and, And that's really because the official data on military emissions is so limited. So for the US, we didn't have access to emissions figures for 2022. And with the UK, we didn't have 2017 or 2018. So really, we're we're working with a limited picture here. And the estimate that we're originally coming to, although it is a reasonably large sum of money, you know, it it could be more in, in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, considering the sizes of military budgets these days, that's not a lot of money, is it? It, it really isn't. When we look at, you know, U.S. Department of Defense appropriations this year at around $840 billion, which is annually what the Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, is the U.S.'s biggest ever climate investment, what the Inflation Reduction Act will spend over the course of a decade. So we're talking about an order of magnitude more spending annually on the military than on climate action. Mm-hmm. And can give me an idea where that money would go? Who would get that money? So what we argue is that that money should go to internationally governed um, climate finance funds. That's something that through UN processes is already being negotiated, already happening, although the richer countries that have said that they'll um, be pledging up to $100 billion of climate finance each year have been failing to deliver that. And what we're, what we're looking at here is actually a separate um, internationally governed fund to cater specifically for the effects of military activity because the militaries are such um, big polluters. They're, they're you know, huge sources of emissions and they're causing ecological damage in other ways. And that's not something that's been accounted for in UN processes so far. There's a there's a good case to be made that this money should be distributed uh, broadly across the global south and because we know that these countries in Latin America and Africa and in Southeast Asia especially small island developing states and places like the Caribbean and Pacific are the most vulnerable to climate change for a couple of reasons. One of which, of course, is just that they lack the uh, financial resources to make investment in climate adaptation, as well as in uh, low carbon development, you know, to really chart their own path for the 21st century as the climate crisis intensifies. So there's this, this dual problem of higher physical vulnerability with lower financial resources to cope. And so there are, there are researchers at the Overseas Development Institute who calculate what the fair share of international climate finance should be based on the historical emissions of the big polluting countries like the US and UK. They find that the US to hit its fair share should really be contributing around $44 billion per year in climate finance, which is about four times more than we officially contribute to these processes. Mm-hmm. Let's talk specifically about those countries. Which countries are you talking about? Sure. There's a very good case that this money should be primarily directed to the poorest countries that are already suffering the impacts of the climate crisis the most while contributing the least. Richer countries like those in Latin America often have access to international financial markets on which they can borrow to undertake climate action, whereas uh, the poorest countries are really dependent or really rely on uh, public climate finance from both the U.S. and U.K. directly, as well as from uh, international financial institutions like the World Bank and IMF. But the, the big part of this is that we think that this money should be distributed as grants rather than as loans 
in order to not add to the the financial burdens of countries already grappling with the impacts of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And one of the tenets of the COP28 is the loss and damage fund. Is that what you're talking about? No, we're actually talking about is an an additional separate fund, um, not for loss and damages to be paid um, for emissions in, say, the UK and US as a whole, but actually to directly account for the operations of militaries. And one of the reasons that we think that this is a really important area for international climate finance is because militaries are under the control of each government. So these are public sector emissions. In the UK, it's around 50% of public sector emissions come from the military using official figures. In the US, it's around 80%. So it's a really, really um, high amount of public sector emissions. And that's something that governments are directly responsible for. And we argue that they have a commensurate responsibility to pay um, international climate finance, those countries that are most affected by the climate crisis, but least responsible. If the US and UK militaries actually wanted to reduce their carbon footprint, what's the roadmap? How would they do that, Ken? So um, what we found in in our research is that um, both the US and the UK militaries are trying to position themselves now as solutions to the climate crisis rather than contributors to the climate crisis. So what what they've both been um, saying in their policy documents is that on the one hand, they want to preserve um, global security that they see as being affected by the climate crisis, but also they think that they can decarbonize their existing operations. Now, if you look into the figures, just the official emissions data that we have available, and that is limited, what you see is that the kind of the the, the most prominent sources of emissions are energy use. And, and, And what is energy use in a military context? We're talking about fighter jets and warships. Now, fighter jets, to take one example, are not a piece of technology that has a viable decarbonisation pathway at the moment. There isn't a zero emissions fuel option um, that fighter jets can take on board. And moreover, they're very expensive pieces of technology. The F-35 programmes costing the US government $1.7 trillion over its lifetime. So it's very difficult to replace them. So really what we found is that you can't just um, decarbonise existing military operations, but rather you have to reduce them in size and you have to close the overseas networks of bases that both the U.S. and the U.K. have. Yeah. Hasn't the Pentagon, the U.S. Pentagon already said that climate change is an existential threat to the to the U.S., specifically the Navy? They have all these bases, San Diego, Norfolk, right there on the water. And, and you may have rising oceans. I mean, do, they seem to believe that, don't they? They absolutely do. I think you could make a very strong case that the the Department of Defense has taken climate change as seriously, if not more seriously, than just about any other federal agency, because they realize that the material impacts of climate change will have serious knock-on effects for their day-to-day operations, as well as uh, what sorts of conflicts we see in the 21st century. The way that they speak about it is that climate change is a threat multiplier and that it won't necessarily produce new conflicts, but it will intensify conflicts and increase their impacts. So they have taken climate change very seriously, but we don't think that it's gone anywhere near far enough. So it's they, they recognize the threat, but they're not moving fast enough, is what I hear you saying. That's right. For a number of reasons, as as Kim discussed, especially around the use of aviation fuel, which is far and away the largest component of U.S. military emissions, it's just very hard to see a pathway towards meaningful emissions reductions. And so while the military can invest in things like seawalls at uh, Norfolk at at Hampton Roads or in base electrification at, at bases across the country, that doesn't really get at the heart of the problem. 
Mm-hmm. Back in 2009, Secretary of the Navy Ray Mabus launched a program for the Navy called the Green Fleet. Are you familiar with that? It, with it, trying to use renewable fuels for its ships? Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely familiar with that. A, a colleague and I uh, wrote a paper on precisely this uh, program back in 2017 that was really my introduction to the problem of, of U.S. military greenhouse gas emissions. And in fact, is why we looked into start quantifying those emissions in the first place, because there wasn't a good figure out there. And so this is one of the very interesting things about the U.S. military is that historically, it's been the one area through which the, the U.S. government really intervenes in, in the economy and in making investments in, in research and development of things like alternative fuels. And so they've been trying to crack this nut for 15 years in terms of coming up with sustainable aviation fuels alternatives. And fortunately, there's just not the scale or volume of these fuels available to make much of a dent anytime in the near term future nor is it entirely clear when those would become economically viable or cost competitive with existing fuels. So it's really a political decision. Absolutely. To expand it so that it's meaningful. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, which is the case with, you know, we, we understand the science of climate change very well. Uh, we understand what the impacts will be to a large extent. And now it's really up to to political process to determine what ought to be done and how quickly we can achieve emissions reductions to avert the worst impacts of global warming. Patrick, you you guys have put a number on the figure here. Uh, Is there any initiatives on that front to hold militaries accountable, Patrick? Well, that is precisely the conversation that we are uh, trying to start. And I think reasonable people can certainly debate what the correct number is. But just by having a conversation about what the number is, I think maybe we start to have a conversation yeah. about how we could get it done. Yeah. And Cam, your report says that if we do cut back on the military, we're going to have to find jobs, right, for all those folks put out of work. Where, where would they go? Well, exactly. And I think what, what, what we see there is that we can really learn from the trade union movement in both the US and in the UK. Because what trade unions have shown us from the 1970s onwards is that actually jobs existing within the military industry at the moment can be converted into um, new industries. And even in the 70s in the UK, they were proposing at Lucas Aerospace, a defence firm, workers were proposing to make heat pumps, which now is seen as a very modern green technology. So I think what's really important to think about here is that when we'd be rolling back military operations, we'd also be having to think about what we do with the military industry. In the US, about $400 billion a year is spent on defence contractors. In the UK, it's a a much smaller figure, but still significant for the UK, of uh, £30 billion a year spent on on equipment for the Ministry of Defence. And if you're cutting back the size of your military, then you really have to have an active strategy and an active plan to convert some of that industrial capacity um, that exists within the military industry to new green jobs. And that can even be done using the same plants. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday is supported by NetSuite. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day are taking a week. You have too many manual processes. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. 
close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com Friday. That's netsuite.com Friday to get your own KPI checklist. I'm Terrence McKnight. Join me for a new season of the podcast where people tell stories about the classical music that shaped their lives. I'm Tom Hiddleston. My name is Natalie Joachim. I'm Marin Alsop, and you're listening to The Open Ears Project. You're going to meet some incredible people, and maybe, like them, fall in love with a piece of music. The Open Ears Project. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We're talking about military climate reparations, how the U.S. and U.K. militaries would hypothetically owe more than $110 billion dollars if they were going to pay for the damage caused by their carbon emissions. I'm here with the two authors on that report, Cameron Gailey, senior researcher at Commonwealth, a think tank in London, Dr. Patrick Bigger, research director at another think tank, the Climate and Community Project. You know, in this era of uh, climate crisis, I already mentioned how the Pentagon views this as an existential threat and a military threat to, uh, to the United States. This really is a national security issue, but thought about differently, is it not, Patrick? It is, and I think as the climate crisis intensifies, part of what we are hoping that this contributes to is a broader conversation about what what is important to achieve security as, as the climate changes around us, and security for whom, and how we finance the investments that we need to ensure, not just security, but, you know, the, the form of reparations that we think about comes from my, my collaborator, Dr. Olufemi Taiwo at Georgetown University, who says that reparations should be world-making. That is, they should make different kinds of worlds thinkable and possible. And so by diverting some amount of money from what would otherwise go to, you know, fuel for F-35 training flights or something like this, you know, maybe non-essential military uses, then how can we think about how worlds, uh, especially for people who are particularly vulnerable in the global South, how they become more secure in a highly uncertain future? You know, the, the idea about cutting back on the military echoes back 60 years to when President Eisenhower, on his last days in office in 1961, he warned Americans about the increasing power of the military-industrial complex, which is a phrase that came into our vocabulary. And he even said, he even warned ecologically, he said, as we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. An irony that Ike, who was the military commander of the Allied forces in World War II, a man who was connected to the military-industrial complex, would, would, would warn us. And it seems like that's still echoing today, 60 years later. Incredibly prescient, is it not? Uh, and yet it also demonstrates a real problem that I think applies to 
various dimensions of the climate crisis that we've known that this is going to be a problem for a long, long time and not taken appropriate action to mitigate our emissions or make the investments in adaptation for the warming we're already locked into. And so uh, maybe we can think back to, to Ike's warning and see what happened when we didn't heed it and maybe make some changes about how we uh, respond to those threats that we've already identified. I want to thank both of you for taking time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much, Ira. You're welcome. Kem Regaley, Senior Researcher at Commonwealth, a think tank in London, and Dr. Patrick Bigger, Research Director at the Climate and Community Project, a progressive climate policy think tank. He's based in Maryland. That's all for today on tomorrow's episode, Material Science and Cocoa Pods. See you tomorrow. I'm Rasha Uridi. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amex slash you know.